chapter 1. He talks about those individuals who claim not to know God. And he says that's impossible because what can be known about God is obvious. In chapter 2, the argument shifts now to those individuals who would sit smugly and think to themselves, I'm a righteous person. I'm a good person. And sit in judgment on those individuals who claim not to know that there is a God. Now, as is our custom this morning before we, before we dig in, let's just pause for a moment and ask God to help us, ask him to open our minds to what the text is trying to say, and then we'll, we'll get to work. So I ask you to bow with me in prayer. Father in heaven, we just say thank you so much again for your word and its clarity to us. Lord, as we come to your scripture this morning, our prayer, Father, is that we would see that we need you and we're desperate for you. Lord, thank you for your kindness and your patience in our lives. Thank you, Lord, for speaking truth and helping us to see it for what it is. And above all, Lord, day by day, year by year, help us to continue giving ourselves into the hands of Jesus Christ and entrusting ourselves to him. Whatever else may come, let us always be found resting in the embrace of Christ. We ask you to do this through your word, by your Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. The first thing I thought when I read the article was, this is really cool, and I want one. I want one. I told my wife, for Christmas, this is what I want you to get me for Christmas next year. I was reading an article on the internet from a a, a news aggregator site, and the headline read, Connecticut man melting snow and ice with flamethrower catches his house on fire. And I shared that with my wife, and she said, I don't, I don't know if we really want a flamethrower, but as a man who shovels snow and does not have a fancy snowblower, I say, yes, I do. Yes, I do. It's kind of an interesting sort of turn of developments. This fellow uh, living in Connecticut, you know, and we're no strangers to this here in Kamloops, the snow fell, and of course, it wasn't a convenient time for him to shovel, and he had to drive to go run errands, and so he drove over the snow, and he compacted it, and it became icy, and, and it was slippery, and, and then he was trying to go out to his vehicle, and he kept slipping and sliding on the ice, and so he thought to himself, I know what I'll do. I'll fire up my, my flamethrower, and, and it's at that point that I'm like, where did you get this flamethrower? You know, I'm reading this article, but he decides, I'll fire up my, thr- my flamethrower, and he's going out, and he's melting the snow off of his driveway. He's melting the ice off of his driveway. And I thought, that's great. And, and being a bit of a perfectionist, he, he's melting it right up next to the house. And next thing you know, his house catches on fire and halfway burns down. Of course, that's the tragic ending to the story. But as I was reflecting on the text this week, I thought this, this story actually provides a perfect metaphor for our culture. This story provides a perfect metaphor for our culture. As undoubtedly you all understand and as you've experienced it, going to work in the grocery store, even with family and loved ones, friends, dear neighbors, the world around us insists that truth is relative, that there's no such thing as an absolute. And of course, the moment you tell them what the Bible says, 
The moment you begin to share with them God's morality and how God would have you to live is the moment that they begin to respond, in a sense, with a flamethrower. Truth is relative. There are no absolute moral standards until you start to say that they are, and then they want to burn it down. And of course, our response as Christians is to wilt in the face of that heat. A couple of weeks ago, last three weeks, I have obviously been preaching through Romans chapter 1 and reiterating clearly what God's Word says in terms of sexual morality and God's condemnation of homosexuality. And a number of you individuals have gone out, a number of you dear brothers and sisters here at First Baptist have gone out and begun to have very constructive conversations with individuals whom you love, whom you care about, in order to, to challenge them with what God's Word says about these things and to offer them the hope of the gospel, only to be met with these flamethrower, harsh, angry responses. And you've emailed me, and we've dialogued, and now what I share with you all is this good news from Romans chapter 2. Anyone who would seek to burn down any argument for morality catches their own house on fire. Look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 2. In Romans chapter 2, Paul's continuing his argument, and he says in verse 1, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges... For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And Paul goes on in verse 2 to say, We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Now, just to kind of remind you of where we're at in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 1, Paul has laid out what his major theme is for this letter that he's writing to the church in Rome. And in verses 16 and 17, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That's what he says. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it, in this gospel that he's talking about, is the righteousness of God, and it's revealed from faith, for faith. It's revealed as a tool that God gives us in order to compel us to believe Him, to take Him at His word, and more so to completely entrust ourselves into His hands. So he says the righteousness of God is revealed in this gospel from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now he makes a statement there in that, in that verse, Romans 1, 16. He says, the gospel is the righteousness of God. He says, to the Jew first, and then to the Gentile. Now, Paul is obviously writing out of a Jewish experience. He was raised, uh, you know, as a Jew, very strictly with an understanding of, of Torah, of the Old Testament law, and how he's supposed to live his life. And of course, he did not grow up in Israel, but he is actually, his home city is Tarsus. It, it was a, a city outside of the regional territory of Israel. But he is a good, faithful Jew. He came to Jerusalem at some point, studied under the legendary teacher Gamaliel and well on his way probably to earning a seat, the coveted seat on the prestigious Sanhedrin. Undoubtedly, this is his career path. This is his trajectory. And of course, you're aware that on the road to Damascus, he meets Jesus. 
and all of the righteousness that he would have put in his understanding of the law, all of his confidence he would have put in his strict adherence to following everything that God laid down in the law, he realized it was all a sham, that even knowing the law, he was not thereby justified by the law, but he was convicted through the law. Always, always it was God's purpose that he would be saved by placing his faith in Jesus Christ. But he makes this interesting statement to the Jew first, and then to the Gentile. And what he does in chapter 1 is he starts with the Gentile, individuals not raised with a knowledge of the Scriptures, grow up in these foreign cultures, and he makes the argument, it's a compelling argument, he says, they know there is a God, and they know that they're accountable to Him. And he talks about how God's wrath is being revealed. And of course, as Paul is writing this, perhaps there are Jews who are hearing this, and they're hearing Paul's denunciation of the Gentiles and the fact that the Gentiles walk in darkness, and they do all of these things that are horrific. And you can just sort of imagine the Jew sitting there hearing Paul say all of these things and thinking, perhaps smugly, that's right. That's right. They do stand under God's judgment. They are guilty. They are responsible. And Paul concludes chapter 1 in verse 32. Sorry, he concludes it with this list in verse 29. Filled with all manner of unrighteousness, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And you can just imagine the self-righteous Jewish person hearing Paul denounce the Gentile world under these terms and thinking, that's right, Paul, I'm nothing like those people. I'm righteous before God. And then Paul shifts his attention in chapter 2 and verse 1 to that Jewish individual or that moral individual, that self-righteous individual. And he says, you also, chapter 2, verse 1, look with me. He says, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. Every one of you who looks at another individual and says, you're responsible for doing bad, wicked things. I'm a good person because I follow the law. I'm a moral person and essentially ascribes to themselves a form of self-righteousness. Paul says, you also are under the condemnation of God. How does he arrive at this conclusion? He says, you have no excuse, oh man, every one of you who judges. And so in making that statement, what he's saying is, if you have ever looked at another person and been critical of their morality or the lack of morality, if you've ever looked at another person and thought that person is wrong, and you've begun to slam them, or even in your heart, perhaps you didn't even verbalize it, but to think critically that the way that they're living their life is wrong, the moment you've begun to do that is the moment that you've set your own house on fire. If you're, Paul goes on, look at what he says. He says, for in passing judgment on another, he says, you condemn yourself because, he says, you judge and practice the very same things. So we as a society like to have our cake and eat it too. Obviously, such a thing is impossible. Nevertheless, we try. And so we live in a society that likes to say there is no objective morality. Because they don't want to get into a debate on what objective morality might look like or how we might discern or understand what objective morality is and how we would arrive at it. 
So they continue to insist there is no such thing as, as objective morality. But then the moment you begin to criticize, that's the moment they denounce you and say, that's wrong. Well, in that moment, they've just set their own house on fire. I'm talking about the world, but I'm also talking about us. The moment you point the finger and say regarding someone else's behavior, that's wrong, is the moment that you acknowledge you also are responsible for the moral failures of your own life. Paul says, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. That is, you bring conviction on yourself. You also are guilty of these things because, he says, you practice the very same things. What he's saying there is we know in our hearts what is right. We know what is right. It is objectively right. We know it. He says we know what ought to be, what we ought to be doing. We know that as well. And we know that what we ought to be doing, we are not in actual fact doing So in the moment that we start to say regarding someone else, they ought to be doing these things, is the moment that we acknowledge that we ourselves ought to be doing these things. And we can't give ourselves a pass if we're not giving others a pass. And all of this is pointing to the fact that there is something on our hearts that is inescapable, irrepressible, no matter how hard we try. We have the moral law of God imprinted on us. One of my favorite authors is uh, C.S. Lewis. I'm sure most of you are familiar with him. You've probably, many of you have read The Chronicles of Narnia. That's his uh, more popular work amongst the kids. And so I'm sure many of us have written, read that one. But he's also written another work that details the moral law, titled by the name of Mere Christianity. And in this particular work, C.S. Lewis, from page one, starts to say that he has observed individuals who begin to argue with one another about various things. They say things to each other like, uh, how would you like it if someone did this to you? They say things like, hey, don't cut in front of me or don't budge in front of me in line. That's not fair. I was here first. Or they say things like, hey, why don't you give me a bit of your orange? After all, I gave you some of mine. Or come on now, you promised. Keep your promise. Now, when individuals argue with one another this way, it's obvious that they're appealing to a standard upon which they assume everyone is in agreement. In other words, when I say, come on, you promised, I'm saying to you that there's got to be some sort of a standard of morality. You you made a promise, and you're supposed to keep your promise. I'm assuming that to be true, and I'm assuming that you agree that it's true. And, And therefore, that's why we're even quarreling in the first place. The idea of quarreling, the idea of arguing, is that I'm trying to show you that you're in the wrong. And when I try to show you that you're in the wrong, the only reason I would engage in that kind of behavior is if I assumed, if I was operating out of this idea that there was something that was inherently right and wrong, that was objective, that we all knew to be true. That's what C.S. Lewis is saying. Both have in mind, both individuals arguing have in mind that there is a rule or a standard, or we might call it a moral law, about which we all really are in agreement. 
Now, on occasion, uh, for example, you're at the fellowship dinner on Wednesday evening, and uh, you, you cut in line to get some food. And, and the guy behind you says, hey, that's not fair. I was here first. Now, you know he's right, and you agree that the standard is applied, and it should be applied across all, all of people equally, but you attempt to either explain why that standard in that particular moment doesn't apply to you or why you're a special exception to the rule, and you find yourself saying things like, well, you know, I need to hurry up and eat because I'm going to be leading this prayer meeting in a few minutes. After all, I'm the pastor, <laughs> right? Now, now, they're right in what they're saying, but and I agree that standard is legitimate, but, but you know, I'm trying to, to justify myself, right? I'm not, I'm not saying to him, in other words, when the individual says, how dare you cut in front of me in line, I don't say to him, what standard are you making this on, right? Where does this come from? This is not a left field. I, of course, I assume the truth of what he's saying, but my response to it isn't to say, down with your standards, down with your morality, how dare you? I don't say that. Nobody says that. What we actually try to do is we, when we argue back and forth, we accept the validity of the criticism, but we try to justify ourselves or to provide some sort of excuse for why the standard, which we all agree exists, ought not to apply in that given situation. And this is exactly the argument that C.S. Lewis is making. It didn't originate with him. This moral argument has been around amongst Christian philosophers for thousands of years, but he articulated it for us in the 21st century. Everybody knows that there is a standard. Everybody knows that it applies to people. You know it applies to you, and you expect that it ought to apply to me and everyone else. This isn't true for anything else that we look at in the rest of the world. For example, if we look at trees or rocks, we might be building, for example, a rock foundation. We might be trying to decorate the, the concrete foundation of our house with river rock, and, and we're stacking this beautiful river rock, and we're using mortar to kind of cement it to the, the foundation of our house, and we might pick up a rock, and it might not be the right shape, or it might not look like the right color, and we'll look at it, and we'll say, rock, why are you not the right color? You know, we might be frustrated, and in that moment when we verbalize it, we're not saying to ourselves that, you know, there's anything actually morally deficient in the rock. We're not saying to the rock, you know, you're a, you're a sinner rock because you're not the right color. We're not actually saying that. What we're saying is I have some purpose of my own for this rock, and of course, this rock doesn't conform to my purpose. And the same is true for trees. There are beautiful trees that have been sculpted and and manicured and carefully uh, snipped and pruned, and they grow into these beautiful, wonderful trees. And then there are really quite ugly trees that just sort of, in the wind and in the sun, perhaps they didn't get enough water, they kind of curled up and looked gnarly. They didn't grow beautiful like they ought to. And of course, you look at that tree and you say, that's a, that's a hideous tree. I, I can't stand that tree. That's just a bad tree. People make these kinds of statements all the time, but they're not actually saying that there's something that the tree ought to have done differently. They're not saying that there's something that the rock ought to have done differently, but that's not the true, that's not true when we speak of each other. When we talk of, to each other about these things, we see somebody cutting in line, or we see somebody uh, not keeping their promise to us. We all acknowledge that we're people, 
and that there are certain laws that apply to all of us which we have to honor. For example, the law of gravity, Sir Isaac Newton, famous statement, what goes up must come down. We all recognize that law binds us to the ground, and we're grateful for it most of the time. We all recognize that there are certain biological principles which bind us. We must breathe air. We must drink water. We don't complain and say, oh, how, how horrific is this? I actually have to ingest water. What's wrong with me? We don't say things like that. When we come to the moral law, we recognize it to be just as binding on all of us in the same way that gravity is, in the same way that water is, and, or, or needing to breathe air. We recognize that there is this moral law, and we want everyone else to be bound by that moral law because inherently we know that society only functions and that we can only experience the fullness of God's blessing if everyone will abide and adhere to that moral law. But, but not us. Not us. We want the exception for ourselves. We want the rules to be broken or badly bent for our own benefit. Paul is saying, if you've ever looked at another individual, and if you've ever seen that individual doing something that was wrong, and you pointed at them and you said, that was wrong, well, what you've really done is acknowledged that there is an objective standard by which right and wrong can be measured. And if you're really willing to be honest with yourself, when you think about that objective standard, you know you have failed that standard. He says you condemn yourself. Why? Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Paul goes on in verse 2. He says in verse 2, Now we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Now it seems almost like it's a repeat of verse 1, but it's not. This verse, verse 2, is, is a concluding statement to what he said in verse 1. He says now, and that now is a, uh, an interesting word in the Greek that is used to signify a logical conclusion. It's not your typical now or your typical, the typical word that would be used for therefore. He is saying, logically, I've come to a concluding point here. He says, we know. And the verb tense for this, we know, is in the perfect verb tense. Now, uh, for my Greek students who are present, they, they pretty well already understand what I'm getting at when I say perfect. But for all the rest of us that haven't studied Greek, you're probably like, well, what does that actually mean? In the Greek, there is a, a verb tense that uh, we don't have in English. In English, we have present tense, we have past tense, and we have future tense. I am doing something. I did something. I was doing something. That's past tense. Or future tense. I will do something. Greek has these tenses as well. But in addition, it also has what we would call the perfect and even a more perfect verb tense, the pluperfect. I won't get into that today. But the perfect verb tense signifies a state of action that has come to completion, fulfillment, 
it is certain, it is full, it is not something that can be reversed. And so what Paul is saying is now, logically, we know something fully, completely, assuredly. It's certain. We can't unknow what Paul is about to say. It is the logical conclusion of everything he's been driving at since verse 18. And what he says is, in verse 2, now we know with a certainty that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. God is right to judge you And when you are judged, when you stand before the Lord on the day of judgment, you will never, ever be able to say with a straight face, either, God, I didn't know you existed and that I was accountable to you. But more specifically to what Paul is saying here in verse 2, you will never be able to say on the day of judgment when you stand before the Lord, God, I didn't know that that was wrong. I didn't know that lying was wrong. I didn't know that cheating or stealing was wrong. I didn't know that certain forms of sexuality, LGBTQ, or these things were wrong. I didn't know coveting was wrong. I had no idea. After all, I grew up in Canada, where everything goes. Right? Everything goes except if you don't want to be vaccinated. (laughs) You see what I'm getting at? If you can't say amen, you should say ouch. (laughs) And I tell you, church, there's a lot of people growing up, living their lives all around us, our neighbors next door, family members, loved ones, dear friends that we went to high school with, and they are immersed in a culture that tells them, do what you feel like, live it up, enjoy it. There is no absolute standard of right and wrong. And they agree with that. They're like, yeah, it's all relative. I can live my life however I want. And yet, if you just read the newspapers, you see that's just not the case. Though they will insist that there's no absolute morality, they practice their own version of morality every day and condemn those who don't follow it. This reveals that their assertion that there is no objective morality is a lie, and they know it's a lie. When they say, I don't want to talk about an objective morality, what they're really saying is, I don't want to be told the truth of the objective morality. I just want to keep things on my level where I can control what is good and right and virtuous, and I get to decide. But as soon as everyone starts to get to decide for themselves and anarchy ensues, everybody's like, oh, wait, 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 you can't do that. No, 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 you can't do that. What Paul is saying is, doesn't matter that you live in Canada, doesn't matter that you live in a a culture with things on the TV and on the radio and on the internet that continue to hammer home this idea that it's all relative, seek out your own truth, be the authentic you, be true to yourself, all these kinds of cliches, you know, that we use to sort of just justify our own wickedness. Paul is saying, at the end of the day, none of that's going to fly with the Lord. None of that's going to fly with the Lord. If I, and what this was really speaking to is that truth and morality, these are things that are absolute. 
They're not relative, they're absolute. Now, what do I mean when I say absolute? What I'm saying is that they are completely true at all times for all people, regardless of where you live. All throughout the history of the world, murder has always been wrong. Now, of course, societies have understood that in order to protect the society, there are occasions, there are times in which we have to go to war. But it's interesting, if you look at the last century, for example, take World War II, what the British were saying regarding the Germans in World War II was, yes, the Germans are bad because they're trying to invade us, but at its core, they were saying the Nazis are wrong. They are wrong. In other words, we have to go to war to defend ourselves, but we're also justified in it because the aggressors here, the ones that are perpetrating these actions against us, are evil. They are subscribing to a morality, and what they're saying, what the British were saying, what the Americans were saying, what the Allies were saying, was that there was a right and a wrong which the Nazis ought to have known, which justified their response. Now, I say that because... This only proves the argument that we all know there's a moral code. Very often what you'll hear individuals say is like, no, 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 every culture has its own moral standard. And I'm here to tell you that's a lie. It doesn't conform with Scripture. There is an objective morality that Scripture says is imprinted on every human heart. But additionally, this assertion that every culture has its own morality is unsubstantiated. It's true, you'll eat different kinds of food. For example, you go to China, red bean paste and grasshoppers fried. Some people, my daughter in particular, thinks that's gross. But it's true, they they eat that stuff there, and they like it, right? I'm not saying it's what I would eat, but they eat it. You go to Germany, Frankfurters, right? You're going to eat sausage, and it's good. I like sausage. You go to Texas, the best place on earth for eating. <laughs> you're going to eat barbecue and ribs. and You're going to eat... Um, well, anyway, I could go on. <laughs> now, it's true. Every culture is unique, okay? We have different food. We have different clothing that we wear. But just because it's true we eat different types of food or we wear different types of clothing doesn't mean that we have our own kinds of morality. That's a lie. It's repeated over and over and over again, ad nauseum, but it's just not true. C.S. Lewis, in his book, discusses this, uh, this very thing. He says, if you actually go back and you look at different, uh, different cultures, he says, it doesn't matter, quote, uh, if anyone would take the trouble, this is what he says, if anyone would take the trouble to compare the moral teaching of, say, ancient Egyptians, Babylonians, Hindus, Chinese, Greeks, and Romans... What will really strike the individual that goes back and looks at those moral codes is how very like, how very like they are to one another and how incredibly similar they are to our own form of morality today. And in the appendix, he details extensive research that he's done, historical research on all of these various moralities. So again, the assertion that every culture, every country has its own form of morality is just another lie that people tell themselves and each other in order to justify their own desire to do what is wrong. Paul is saying, now we know 
that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. I want you to see the whole paragraph, though, the whole, the whole statement. He says, therefore, you have no excuse. So nobody has any excuse. This is, this is what he's been saying in chapter 1, second half of chapter 1. Everyone who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And he says, we know that the judgment of God, we know this for a fact, this is true, that we know with certainty that the judgment of God correctly, rightly falls on those who practice such things. And now he's going to engage in a series of rhetorical questions. Verse 3, he says, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Yes, that's what the man would respond with. Yes, because isn't it, shouldn't it, morality relative, I can do what, Paul is saying no. We know it's a fact now. When you pass judgment on another, you point one finger this way, there are three more pointing right back at you. If you're going to say that's wrong, and you've ever done that in your life, well, then you're wrong. If you're going to say this individual ought not to lie, if you've ever lied, you're just as guilty as they are. And so this desire to say, I'm somehow exempt, I'm somehow above the rules, he says it won't Fly, And he poses this rhetorical question, do you suppose, oh man, that you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Yes, man supposes that. But here Paul is driving home the truth, the morality is absolute. And this just strikes at the very nature of reality. When I use this word truth, I'm talking about that which corresponds to what is real. You say, I can determine my own truth. I'm going to speak my own truth. We can show how absurd that notion is with rat poison. What do you believe to be true about rat poison? It's got arsenic in it or other forms of poison. When you feed it to rats or other rodents, they die. Do you believe that to be true? Good, good. Then I don't have to worry about any of you going home and eating rat poison for lunch today, right? Individuals will say, I don't believe that's true. That's just not true for me. That may be true for you. That's not true for me. Say, well, why don't you just decide your own truth for rat poison? Maybe it's an interesting, delicious spice that you could put on your hamburger. Is that true for you? Do you want that to be true for you? Now, in this moment, this is where this idea of I get to choose my own truth, what's true for you isn't necessarily true for me. This is when this illusion is destroyed. Think what you will about rat poison. You know when you eat it, Whatever dreams you may dream for this box of rat poison, whatever fairy tale, imaginative, creative idea you want to come up with for rat poison, it's rat poison. And despite all of your wishing it to be different, it will always be true, equally for me and for you, that this rat poison 
will kill you if you eat enough of it. You can wish it away all you want. You can claim that such is not the case. Nevertheless, if you really put power in that idea, then why don't you just use it alongside your salt and pepper? You see, you know it's, it's not how truth works. I preached through uh, Romans chapter 1. Most of you are here. We uphold a biblical sexual ethic. We made our sermons public online regarding what God has to say about LGBTQ identif- identities and, and what the Bible says about sexual morality. And um, we, we posted that out there as a matter of principle because the government should not be capable of dictating. These, these, are, these are matters of faith and morality, and the government should not be silencing churches from trying to speak out about these things. And so as a matter of principle, we preached, we delivered that word, and we posted it publicly. Now, in the uh, weeks that followed, I have uh, made acquaintances with many members of our local chapter of Gay Pride. And they have sent me correspondence. For some, it's not been productive in terms of the dialogue. But for some, it has been. One of the arguments that was presented is, you know, in some of these studies you cite in your sermon that show that uh, it's possible for individuals who struggle with LGBTQ temptation to repent and to change their sexuality back to what God gave them. When you cite some of these studies, some of the authors of these studies retracted their studies. And so you can't use those studies, right? In fact, uh, one criticism, and in fact, Dr. Spitzer, the Spitzer study from 2003 that demonstrated 88% of women and something like 64% of men who attempted conversion therapy were successful. And regardless of whether they were successful or not, uh, 100% claimed there was no harm in reparative therapy or conversion therapy practices. Many individuals sent me correspondence saying, it is harmful. Dr. Spitzer retracted his study. And the assertion is made, you're either an idiot because you don't know that, or you're a liar because you knew it and you ignored it. I knew that Dr. Spitzer had retracted his study when I cited that in my message from three weeks ago. I don't believe that makes me a liar. Dr. Spitzer retracted his study. He published in 2003, and at the time, it was considered the definitive. Today, in fact, it's still considered the definitive work on exploring whether or not individuals can repent of homosexuality. It shows that overwhelmingly they can And it shows that counseling and efforts used to help them repent of that sin are not harmful. It's still the definitive work to this day. It is true that Dr. Spitzer retracted his work in 2012, and I was aware of it. He, uh, in an interview with Gabriel Arana in the American Prospector, an article published April 11th of 2012 entitled, My So-Called Ex-Gay Life, Gabriel Arana, Mr. Arana, is detailing 
how friends and family tried to attempt him to repent of his homosexuality, but he liked the lifestyle, and he considered these efforts at reparative therapy or conversion therapy to be harmful. And he called Dr. Spitzer because Dr. Spitzer had published the definitive work. And as you'll recall, I said to you at that time, Dr. Spitzer had been a gay rights activist his whole life and still believed in the freedom of individuals to identify as gay if that's what they chose. So here he is now, an old man in his mid-80s, and this young kid calls up from the newspaper and says, I'm doing an article, and you wrote this study, and how dare you write this study? So Dr. Spitzer says to this young man, I tell you what, I retract my study. And Mr. Arana publishes that retraction. And now all of the members of Gay Pride are telling me, you can't quote a study that this guy retracted. But I knew that he had retracted it in 2012, and I still vetted him because it was still the definitive work. I looked at the actual research. He had done extensive interviews with multiple other psychologists detailing his work. And although he retracted it, I have here a letter to the editor of the Archive for Sexual Behaviors for Psychiatric Studies. Four doctors in particular, a Jerry Armelli, an Elton Moose, an Ann Polk, and a James Fillon. Four doctors who reviewed his work, which I was aware of this letter as well, and they said regarding Dr. Spitzer's study that it was, quote, methodologically superior to everything else. Quote, Spitzer recorded changes not just in participants' behavior, but also in their feelings, fantasies, attractions, and how they performed sexually. Considering the measures used in previous studies were limited, this is still considered today to be a significant advancement in research methodology regarding reparative therapy or conversion therapy. They then go on to talk about Dr. Spitzer's retraction, which was published by Mr. Arana, and this is what they say, quote, Mr. Arana, who was not a participant in the Spitzer study, explained to Dr. Spitzer that he was in reparative therapy as a teen and that he thought that such therapy was harmful. Dr. Spitzer, allegedly, according to Mr. Arana, was sympathetic and believed Mr. Arana's self-report. We believe that Dr. Spitzer is a humane and empathic doctor with feelings for those in pain. We assume that he thought that by proxy, he now was responsible for some people who either tried conversion therapy and did not experience it or did not want to try but felt pressure to do so. We believe he felt responsible for some people having felt hurt by his report. Last sentence in their review. Quote, However, one can apologize for the consequences of a study, but one cannot undo the evidentiary data. Well-intentioned sentiments such as those expressed by Dr. Spitzer can never undo the facts of what he observed in his 2003 report. Many of you have heard of Sir Isaac Newton, what goes up must come down, Newtonian physics. Now, it could be said that gravity has been incredibly hurtful to a number of people. Could it not? 
I, I mean, we preach through Acts. Remember Eutychus, poor Eutychus? Paul is preaching all through the night. My hero, preaching, 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 never stop preaching. You guys really like it when I preach all day long and all night long and you fall asleep, right? No? Just be glad we're not in an upper room next to a window. Eutychus, you'll recall, fell asleep during Paul's long-winded sermon. No comments to me after the service today about my service. Eutychus fell asleep and, wouldn't you know it, gravity killed him. Sir Isaac Newton, hypothetically, if he'd been alive back when poor Eutychus fell out of that window and died as a result of gravity, may have felt so guilty. He may have said, you know what? I retract my study of my observations on gravity. This is horrible that people are just being bothered and harmed and just bad things are happening as a result of gravity, right? Now, Sir Isaac Newton can retract any study or any law of physics or any theory of the mechanics of the universe that he wants. He, can, he is free to retract those things if he believes that his study and his investigation into these things is harmful to people. He's free to do that. But guess what, church? You may choose not to believe the truth which you may have spent a lifetime searching out and investigating and attempting to articulate and describe. You may choose not to believe that truth, but it does not change what is true. Whether or not Sir Isaac Newton or any of us want to believe that apples, when we throw them up in the air, must come down, the truth remains consistent. What goes up comes down. This is the nature of absolute truth. I was fully aware of uh, Dr. Spitzer's retraction, and that's exactly why I used that journal, because his methodological excellence in his research to this day, despite his personal feelings and his personal championing of gay rights and the gay right movement, his research is unassailable. It's peer-reviewed. No one has been able to overturn what he wrote back in 2003, not even Dr. Spitzer. And I cite these studies, again, some of you are like, okay, that's great. You know our authority is in the truth. Our authority, our basis for what we say is grounded in God's word. I cite these studies not because I actually think I need a study in order to prove that you can repent of homosexuality. I cite the studies because of how many individuals are listening who may not subscribe to the Bible, may not place their faith in Scripture in the hopes and the prayer that I can present the Scriptures to them and also show them that all those individuals they might respect undeniably agree with the Scriptures, that the Bible is true and we can trust it in all things. And what Paul is saying here is whether we believe in the Bible, morality, truth, these things are absolute. So, Paul concludes. Verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? He talks about God's kindness. And there are two responses that God has to the hypocrite who would attempt to assign a morality to someone else, but to believe that they themselves are not accountable to that morality. 
There are two responses that God gives here to the individual who justifies themselves, who who seeks to establish their own self-righteousness while condemning the world around them. Response number one, God is just in his judgment. Judge or judgment is used seven times in this paragraph. It is the recurring word that happens over and over and over again. God is just. The judgment is just. His judgment rightly falls on those who do these things. Over and over again, Paul is saying, you cannot look at God's judgment of people who sin and somehow come to the conclusion that he's unfair or ungracious or unkind in his judgment. No, we know we deserve it. And we also know we're all trying to lie to ourselves in order to get out of it. We may suppress that truth. We may get really good at suppressing that truth, but the truth never changes. God's judgment is just. But notice the second thing he says here. And we can't have the just judgment of God and miss the second thing that Paul says about God. It says that he is kind. Look at this. He says, do you, verse 4, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience. The second thing that this text is telling us about God, first and overwhelmingly, God is right to judge us, and he is just and righteous in his judgment. But number two, his response to hypocrites who would seek to condemn other people while justifying themselves is one of kindness. He says, you'll notice in verse four that Paul speaks of the riches of his kindness. That means that God isn't just a little kind. He's not just kind of, sort of kind. He is incredibly kind. He has this huge resource of kindness, which he's offering to the world. In fact, he's pouring this kindness out on all of us, on all of this world in Canada right now. That's the implication of these two words. He says, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But going back to that first part of that verse, he says kindness, and he has two words which he uses to to describe that kindness. He says, number one, forbearance, and number two, patience. In other words, God's justice does not demand that he has to punish us right now. When talking about these things, we often get this impression in our head that God is up in heaven just waiting to zap us. And the human response to that is, well, that sounds awfully mean, so perhaps our understanding of morality isn't accurate because he's not actually zapping us when we break the law. No, God loves you. He's kind. He's not waiting to just zap you the second that you sin. But don't make the mistake of looking at that and that forbearance and that patience and coming to the conclusion that God doesn't actually care about your sin or that somehow your sin is really okay in his eyes. No, God is kind, But that is not intended to be a justification for us living in sin. He goes on, he says, that Paul says here that in his forbearance and his patience, he is waiting because his desire is that we would repent. Look at the second half of verse 4. Not knowing that his kindness, which is marked again by forbearance and patience, his kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Forbear means that he knows the judgment you deserve, but he holds back from giving you that judgment. He holds back from immediately judging you and condemning you and punishing you because his desire is that you would repent. But when you live in sin, you understand that there is a form of suffering that is happening in God's heart. That's what that word patience means. 
long-suffering. He holds back his judgment that you deserve. He holds it back in forbearance. But your sinning still hurts him. And that's why Paul uses that word patience. God suffers long over the things that we do, which we know are wicked. His forbearance and his patience are exercised because his desire is that we would repent. That's what God is looking for here. And why do we not repent? We'll look at this verse more next week. Paul tells us, verse 5, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Church, as we conclude today, as we come to the end of this meditation upon Romans 1, Chapter 2, verses 1 to 2. What I really want to impress upon you is that God's word is true. God's judgments are just. And when we speak God's truth, it is a kindness. We can speak of God's truth knowing full well that God is still waiting before he brings his judgment. And we can share that with individuals as well. But one thing that I really need to impress upon you as we close today, I'm so proud of those of you that have had conversations with loved ones that identify as LGBTQ. I want you to know that. When we go to them and we share God's word with them, we cannot ever do so from a place of moral superiority. It is only but by the grace of God that we were led to repentance ourselves. As we appeal to our neighbors, our loved ones, members of our family, we appeal on the basis of truth, not justifying ourselves, not inviting them under any means to look at our life and to say, look, I did it, you can too. We point them to Christ. All of these things point back to the cross. We are able to repent. We are able to believe. We are able to trust in God because Jesus died for us. That's what we hold to. That's what we proclaim, not ourselves. We do not proclaim ourselves, but Christ and him crucified for your sake. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we just say thank you so much for this amazing letter, this gift of Romans. Thank you so much, Lord, for it working in the the heart of the Apostle Paul to inspire these words, to have this scripture recorded. And our prayer today, Father, is that we would not seek to be self-righteous or to justify ourselves or to look at our lives and to think in any way uh, as being morally superior or somehow better than the world around us. But Lord, Let our pleas and our cries to our neighbors be done from a place of desperation for you. 
Let our witness point to the fact that we are just as in need of you as they are. And Lord, in all of our evangelism, in all of our testimony, our prayer, God, is that we would fall out of the picture, that the cross would be exalted, that all the world may see more of you and less of us. We ask that you do this in Christ's name. Amen.